1: Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. It's so great to see you. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Although I say that because there's so much I want to talk to you about. I've also, as I was sharing before we came on, just want to thank you. You are, as I said in my intro, in Florida, in the state legislature. You're the policy chair. You're the leader designate for the Democratic caucus. So you've got your hands full. And there's so much going on in Florida that we're watching nationally. So to you and to your colleagues, thank you for keeping up the good fight. It cannot be easy.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. We are working hard to do all that we can to make sure that we protect every Floridian's right to be healthy, prosperous, and safe. I believe every Floridian deserves that, and that's what keeps me going even when times get hard.
1: Yeah, I love that. Well, let's dive in. I mean, obviously, Florida's ground zero on the culture wars We're talking this week after the leaked Supreme Court draft decision on Roe, you're a lawyer in addition to your legislative job. You know, any thoughts both just kind of on where we find ourselves and specifically what happens in Florida? We're all in different states. And if this decision does come to fruition this summer, of course, states will be the arbiter of who's going to have access to reproductive healthcare and who's not. I'm sitting in California. I think what you know looks like in my state is going to be very different than what it looks like in your state. What are you seeing, thinking about as we found out this information this week?
2: Well, I have to tell you, I've been having conversations with lots of friends and colleagues about whether or not people were surprised. And it's like, even though we knew this could be a possibility, there's still a lot of shock around it, right? Because every time Roe has been challenged in the courts, the courts have upheld it and stare decisis matters, you know, precedents matter. And I think we've always looked to the court to be that backstop in political wins, change, you know, presidents come and go, you know, majorities come and go in Congress or state legislatures, but the courts are supposed to be that constant, you know, that third judicial branch of government and, You would imagine that once a group of individuals, particularly women and pregnant people, once they have that right that has been granted to them and affirmed over and over again in the law of the land for 50 years, that it would stay in place. So there's been, I think, a lot of shock, but in a certain way, not a lot of surprise in terms of what we've seen, even in Florida, trying to set up legal challenges around the right to choose.
1: Are you one of those states that has a trigger law where this will go into effect immediately if it was struck down at the federal level or, or not?
2: We do not, although we are headed back to special session later this month here in May to address property insurance. And the last time we had a special session, it was supposed to be limited to redistricting, drawing new congressional maps. And at the last minute, the governor expanded the call of special session to allow for legislation to punish Disney because Disney spoke out and tried to affirm its employees and members of the Disney community and family that would be hurt by that bill, right? It wasn't just about criticizing the governor, which is how it was framed, but it really was trying to do the right thing. And the governor expanded the call to special session at the last minute, literally the day special session was starting to include that. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw an expanded call to session. We're supposed to be dealing with property insurance, the property insurance crisis. I wouldn't be surprised if it expanded to pass a trigger law.
1: Oh my gosh, that's distressing. Keep an eye on it. Let's talk specifically about some of the other just back, back a better word culture war issues that you're dealing with. The a gay bill you already mentioned, and then the anti-woke bill. I'm just curious. Obviously, you are with your Democratic colleagues in the minority, significantly in both houses both chambers. So how do you think about those things? I mean, you can, you know, there's legislative. only so much you can do. You're going to vote against them, of course. I'm just curious, like how you feel about, you know, your role as these things are passing in terms of speaking out against them, what you kind of think your role in, in this is now. Sure. So, you
2: know, I think that as the minority party, we hold important space and we are there to push for accountability, to push for transparency, to make sure that our colleagues across the aisle, even as they are taking those votes, they hear about they hear the stories of the people who would be impacted by that legislation. And I said all session long, what we've seen is a common theme of suppressing the stories of people suppressing our stories, the stories of marginalized communities, the stories of women. When you consider the 15 week abortion ban that got passed, you know, most Americans and Floridians want to see a balanced approach actually to choice. And they think that it is too extreme to do like what our legislature did, which was to not include Any exception for rape, incest, or human trafficking, you know, some of the most evil acts that could happen to a woman. And so you need to hear these stories. You need to understand lives in context. You need to understand that there are kids who are LGBTQ plus and who you are now pushing even to further invisibility. You need to understand the impact of what you do on these lives. And so we hold space and we tell the stories and then we walk out of there when session's done and we walk into campaign season and we tell the story again and we see if we can bring more people back with us. So I know it is holding important space.
1: So when we think about what might happen with Roe, you kind of alluded to this, right? We know that nationally speaking, you're talking about Floridians, you know, 67% or whatever people support the upholding of Roe, right? So this, this is being done against the people's will, if you will. Do you, how does it feel, do you think, to everyday Floridians, all of these different things that are passing? Do you think that there is broad support for them? Or do you think that people are kind of surprised by what's happening? Or like, what what do you think the average Florida's constituent kind of feels about all the stuff that's going on there?
2: I think that the average Floridian wants us to address the issues that impact them the most, and that has nothing to do with your party, your sexual orientation, your gender identity, the color of your skin. It has to do with how am I going to have good wages and a good paying job to provide for my family? It's housing. It's what I talked about, that healthy, prosperous, and safe piece. Property insurance rates are out of control in Florida. Florida has just been named the most unaffordable state when it comes to housing. How are our schools? It's those things. Can I afford health care? And to me, it is just so disappointing. And to everyday Floridians, it's disappointing too, that at a time where they're trying to decide, should I fill up my gas tank all the way? Or should I spend this money buying more groceries for my family at a time where people are really trying to decide how they can provide for their families? We're in Tallahassee doing this foolishness. And I think that turns people off. I think it turns a lot of voters off and they get disaffected with the process. But what I hope is that people will start to feel a little more empowered by their vote And really be the change that they want to see or vote for the change that they want to see, because that's the only way we're going to turn things around.
1: I think that's so important that you just said that because it is a distraction. This stuff is all a distraction. And, uh, you know, I have a friend say something along the lines of, you know, there's people who want to make a statement, there's people who want to make a difference. And it feels like a lot what's happening right now is people are trying to make a statement in a way that doesn't, to your point, really impact people's lives very much. Could I say something else, Debbie, which is like, you saw the act, it was a House Bill
2: 7, which is supposed to ban instruction of CRT in classrooms, critical race theory. However, two points on that, Florida's Board of Education already outlawed, already banned CRT, it's not taught in our schools. Furthermore, Republicans have been in control of every chamber and the governor's mansion in Florida since 1998. So, if it were being taught, who would have put it there? It would have been the Republicans in control right now. But they know that they can take this concept that is, it seems scary to some people. They know they can use it as a a fear tactic and to drive a wedge between our communities. This is not who Florida really is. I know that the nation might think that this is who Florida is, but I grew up here. I'm a Florida native. And I see the way that politicians are trying to use these wedge issues just to divide us. And so it's a sad and unfortunate thing that they can use these boogeymen to divide us. CRT is not even a thing in Florida.
1: No, anywhere, really, anywhere. I totally agree with you. And I think that it's important we call that out. I think it's important we say that this is a distraction and most people want all the things you talked about. To be talking about prices, to be talking about jobs, to be talking about health care, to be talking about child care. I mean, you know, and what are we talking about? So I agree. I do want to ask you follow-up a question about asking about the special session, which is going into legislature, you said at the end of May, around this property insurance issue. It's crazy in Florida, right? Something like 25% increase, way higher than the rest of the country. What's going on there? And what are you hoping that you can do legislatively to fix it?
2: There's a lot of cost drivers in Florida that's making it higher. So, first of all, we need to make sure that we're increasing our reserves. Our loss reserve development is lower. And so, it, this is what happens when the estimated amount of funds to set aside to fulfill future claims of liability is not enough to cover actual liability. So we have to look at that. There's catastrophic loss creep. So we had some really significant natural disasters, including Hurricane Michael, which devastated the panhandle. So when you have those catastrophic losses, you know it costs more to spread the risk. Reinsurance, rising reinsurance rates is an issue where insurers will... Purchase reinsurance to help spread their risk and absorb larger claims with less impact. But a lot of uncertainty in the rises in catastrophic loss and loss creep has led to higher reinsurance rates. I'm sure all of your listeners are, <laughs> their eyeballs are glazing over. But one other thing, too, that I wanted to mention that we have to figure out there have been a lot of litigation claims around roof replacements in Florida. And so that can also lead to rising costs. And, you know, please hear me out. There are times where people legit need new roofs. They legitimately need that and their insurance company should be there. But we also know that there have been some unscrupulous actors in the form of contractors who are leading people to believe that they need a new roof when they don't. And so then that could result if there's a dispute with the insurance company could result in higher litigation claims. And then that cost gets spread around as well and causes everybody else's rates to grow up too. So I think we have to look at reforms in a a broad way. A lot of people will tell you that it's just litigation. I'm not convinced that it's just litigation. I think there's a lot that we have to look at.
1: Yeah, it's an important issue. I want to follow up on one other issue that I know you're working on just because I think it's so important. I know you're getting some national attention for it and something that is an issue all over the country, which is you've been making some traction around abandoned African American cemeteries in Florida. Can you just tell us what got you into that area and why it's important and and what other people should know in other states maybe that they should be emulating? Sure. You know, I give so much credit to two people on this issue.
2: The first is Paul Guzzo, who's a reporter with the Tampa Bay Times, and he's the one who first wrote the story about the abandoned Zion Cemetery here in Tampa, which is what kind of kicked off all of this attention here locally, and it's it's spread nationally. And he is a reporter who uh, does like historical reporting, and Zion had been lost to history in an old Black cemetery, and he really helped track it down, its location, etc. So that's one, because his reporting is what inspired me to want to have uh, policy on this. And then two is Senator Arthenia Joyner, who formerly served both in the House and in the Senate. She was the first black woman in the state of Florida to serve as uh, leader of the Senate Democrats. And she and I talked about it. She's a, a mentor of mine. And she's like, you know, this really could be a policy idea. So those two, I give a lot of credit to. And then it's just been a matter of trying to highlight the issue and thinking through what role the state can play in communities when they find these abandoned or neglected or stolen or erased black cemeteries.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I and I also saw that it's pretty comprehensive, right? You, you know, there's the identification, there's the preservation, there's also education around it to make sure people are aware. I mean, I just think that I love that it's such got you're taking such a comprehensive approach. And I hope we'll encourage people to look at the legislation that you're working on because I think it's, I'm sure, an issue across the country, as you said.
2: People sometimes find it difficult to talk about challenging aspects of our history. They find it very difficult to talk about race as well. But one thing that everybody understands is heritage and the sanctity of our loved ones who have passed on. And so what we're finding is that through this legislation and these policy initiatives, it opens the door to have conversations around our history and to have conversations around past racism, but what we can do to educate ourselves and to make sure that things like this don't ever happen again. So it's been a real pleasure. Like it's been, it's been the, the pleasure and joy of a lifetime to be able to work on this policy area.
1: Thank you for your efforts on that. I want to turn a little bit to politics although we're still in the legislature <laughs> here, you know, election year, redistricting year, you served on the Redistricting Commission. And I want to draw attention. I don't know how many of our listeners are kind of were following what was happening with the redistricting in Florida, but kind of in an unprecedented move, as I understand the Republicans let the governor take a lead on redrawing the lines. He kind of eliminated two of what were four historically black districts. And you all in the House did a protest to the sit-in to try to draw attention to what was happening there. So where where is the redistricting? Searching process there, what's next? And what was your experience with this?
2: Right. And I try to be careful not to take credit for that sit-in because it was led by two of my colleagues and the rest of us joined in. And I, I think what happened is they were expressing the frustration that so many of us felt that the governor was inserting himself in a way that I think is unconstitutional. Now, my colleagues across the aisle argue that the governor is a citizen of the state of Florida, just like anybody else, and he has a right to weigh in. My argument, my counter to that is no, he's not like everybody else. He's the executive. That's the function that he holds. He holds a veto pin. He and he alone. I don't have a veto pin. You know, Debbie, you got a veto pin. I would love a veto pin. I don't have one. And so it necessarily makes it different. Also, he's using his bully pulpit to try and set up a constitutional challenge to the federal voting rights, the Federal Voting Rights Act. And what I always say is that Governor DeSantis said that he wanted a race neutral map, but what he drew is a map that neutralizes Black voters. And that's not right. And it's unconstitutional. And so that map passed and it's already been challenged in court. And so now it's going to be up to the courts because the legislature refused to do its constitutional duty and draw a constitutional map. It's really sad. It's really sad. And this has consequences beyond Florida because if he challenges the Federal Voting Rights Act and wins, it will diminish Black voting power across the country.
1: Yeah, it is important. It's important for people to realize what's happening there and what could happen through this litigation. And it's also, you know, comes on the heels of, right, other voting legislation that was passed that marginalizes voters, which, including, and, and I don't know if, you know, I'd love your thoughts on this idea of this kind of the election police, for lack of a better term. Mm. So you've had so much going on into 2022 and then beyond, you know, like, are you concerned about? Or when you think about the upcoming election, like, what do you have your eye on? What are you watching? Are you concerned that, you know, this there's going to be so many changes that it's going to, you know, really result in an unfair election, frankly? I think that
2: there has been so much that happened this legislative session. There should be an issue like whatever is your issue, whatever is a particular voter's issue, like there's something for that, right? <laughs> if you're a Black voter, there's something for you. Latinx voter, Hispanic voter, there's something for you. LGBTQ+, there's something for you. You care about public education, yeah, there's something. There's been an enough that's occurred for people to care about. So I'm hoping that That helps to drive turnout, but we have to do our part in terms of voter education, engagement and empowerment to make sure that the people do turn out the vote. I also think we've got a governor who is very clearly running for president in 2024. And if people think that it's bad for Florida now, like just think about how it would be for the entire country. And so our best chance to make our voices heard and to elect a governor and other representatives and senators who represent our values is, is right now.
1: Yeah, I think that's really well said. And, you know, it is, must be really interesting to be in a state where your governor has his eye on bigger things, so to speak. But just, you know, taking a step back, I guess I also want to ask you, you know, about Florida again, when people think of Florida, quintessential swing state for so long, right? All eyes on Florida, most every presidential election really in my, you know, my lifetime. Is Florida still a swing state? I think so. I think so. Maybe 22 will really tell it.
2: But I think more than anything, Florida is a microcosm of the country. And so what do I mean by that? You know, Florida went blue for Obama in 08 and in 2012. And I think kind of like how the rest of the country does, we can fall in love with a candidate. And I think that matters quite a lot. The personality and values of a particular candidate can kind of drive the way that we go. You know, you think about Ron DeSantis, our current governor. Yes, he won in 2018, defeating Andrew Gillum, but it was only by around 30,000 votes, a little more than that. Florida has 67 counties. That's fewer than 500 votes per county. It's not the overwhelming majority that he would have you think it is. He just has the gavel and he's running with it. But I would say that we're still a swing state and that our that our elections matter. But I, I kind of feel like we're a microcosm of what happens nationally. I think people got swept up in Donald Trump's personality here. And that continued, unfortunately, for us in 2020. But we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see.
1: Yeah. No. If you give that gives me hope a little bit. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. I- I to pivot a little bit if I can to, as you know, this is an honorable profession podcast. And the idea is that serving in politics and government is an honorable profession, which I full 100% agree with. And I think right now, in particular, given how hard it is to be an elected official when there's so much noise and anger and division. And, you know, I, I really am proud that we have this space to hear from people like you who are leading about kind of how they got into politics and what motivated them. So love to talk to you about that. I want to point out in, in the setup of this that you have a really impressive, you are super impressive, but a really impressive kind of background. I know that you were the first black student ever to be student body president of Harvard, which is just amazing. But I think if I read right, and I won't tell your story that you actually was a high school experience, maybe that got you interested in politics and government. So what happened? And is that when you kind of knew this is what you wanted to do? That's right. And thank you for those kind words, Debbie.
2: That's so sweet. So I grew up in Florida, like I told you, Florida native, and I participated in a program known as Florida Girl State. And people might know Girl State and Boy State. I think there's a, a movie on Netflix, Boy State. But I was in Girl State, and it teaches you about Florida government at every level. And I was absolutely hooked. And I decided to run for governor of Girl State and won. And I got to meet the governor at the time, Lawton Childs. He's the last Democratic governor that we had in the state. And he inspired me, but also understanding the function that a governor plays and the function that a state legislature plays. I I learned that as a high school student, 17 years old. And I thought, you know what, someday this is what I want to do. Went on, you know, to to college and law school and started a career and kind of got away from that dream, if I'm honest. But after the 2016 election, I felt like I had something to offer and I wanted to be involved. I am a consensus builder. I wanted to offer those skills up to my community because I felt like we were at a point where we couldn't even talk to each other anymore. Neighbors can't even be friends anymore, depending on the political yard sign, that they have displayed at their home. And that's not who we are as Americans, fundamentally, I don't believe. I don't think that's who we are as Floridians. And so I always want to try to be a part of the conversation that brings us back from the brink and just sees each other, sees the humanity in each other. Yes, we may have differences in in our policy opinions, and that's okay, but this is our democracy, and we need to do what we can to defend it, and I always want to be a part of that, and I believe part of it is making sure that we're maintaining separation of powers, we're having respect for the Constitution, but also having respect for each other.
1: Yeah, well, and i love to hear you say that because it, it does feel like sometimes for people that we are in this... Place we were never going to get back from to, to return to those kinds of civil conversations. And I, I too believe we, we can get there. I want to end with a question about you mentioned being elected governor of Girl State when you did that. And when you were in high school, obviously I mentioned your role as student body president at Harvard. And then now you've been elected, as I mentioned, the top Democratic leader designate, which I, I, means that you will be in charge of the caucus in the 2024, 2026 legislative season, I believe, and I have that right. And you will be the first black woman ever to lead the caucus. So first, congratulations. And that's amazing. And tell me kind of what do you do in that role? And kind of what are you hoping to accomplish when you when you have that role? Well, thank you for that acknowledgement. I'm excited about it. So
2: while you're designate, and technically now I'm designate elect. And so basically that means that I help out more so on the campaign side. And I help raise resources for our candidates and to go out, like I said, to the community and tell the story, You know, try to get our messaging right. And, and so we can elect more Democrats and bring more people back with us. Then I'll be leader designate, which means I will be the one in charge of our campaign cycle, setting that strategy, which races we invest in. And you do that for two years. And then you're the actual leader where you lead on the legislative side and the policy side. So it's a big runway full of great opportunities to serve my caucus and my legislature and my country. So I'm I'm real excited about it.
1: Super cool. And by the way, I don't think a lot of states do that. It's actually an interesting runway, right? People get elected for the coming legislative season. I'm not sure every state has the runway that you guys have, which I think has got to be helpful, right, to kind of be involved in all aspects and then have that opportunity to be really ready when when you're leading.
2: Yeah. And it's new for us. This is only the second cycle where we've done this, where we've, we've had that runway, but I think it's smart because you have to start thinking in terms of multi-cycle strategies and what's going to be your continuity. And so it's been great working with the current leader designate and the current leader and really trying to learn the ropes.
1: Yeah. I'm excited to see what you do with the position. I know it will be big things, whatever it is. And I'm super grateful to you for coming on an honorable profession today. It's been so fun to talk to you. Thank
2: you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Thank you.:
0: Thanks for listening to an honorable profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.